You're listening to Fearless with Mark and Amber, the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. If this is your first time joining us, hello and welcome. Um, In 2018, Mark and I began making a documentary film about how our local community became known as the second largest abortion desert in the United States. The things that we've learned along the way and the people we've interviewed have been an experience like none other. Yeah, like none other. Like who else goes into an abortion clinic and sits down and interviews the abortionist? Oh, we do. We do. So if you're not familiar, the the, the film that we uh, produced on this subject, it's called Inwood Drive. It's a documentary film. And um, what we're going to share with you is part three today of a four-part uh, audio book, which is uh, from a uh, an ebook, which is from a four-part blog series that I actually wrote the fall of 2018, right after we interviewed George. Mm-hmm. And I just sat down. And I just I wanted to record our interaction with him because it was so stark i think profound profound bizarre in a lot of ways and uh, we actually had the film done last fall and we're getting ready to go into release and marketing mode and then george died and uh, then everything came unraveled because that's when they discovered that he had been hoarding fetal remains in his garage and in the trunk of one of his hoarded cars and uh, then the whole world knew who George Klopfer was, and uh, we knew all about him long before that. We were the only ones that ever interviewed him. Uh, we interviewed him for the film, and he's in the film quite a bit, actually. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if you haven't listened to parts one and two, go back and uh, you can find those in the previous weeks. But part three here, wanted to talk about a couple of things that George talks about in parts three and four here you get to hear more of uh, George actually talking so we've Mm -hmm. got got him actually in this and I had a question uh, for you talking about our our interactions with George and one of the first things that he started talking about uh, was Dresden and Mm -hmm. talked in the last episode about how Dresden, the Dresden story was something that we had heard but didn't necessarily believe. And then he started actually confirming all of this. And so basically you'll hear this story where he talks about being, we figured he was about five or six years old growing up in Dresden in 1945 and living through the Allied fire bombings and what that did to him, this profound effect. Mm Mm-hmm that it obviously had on him. But I haven't experienced a lot of trauma. <laughs> I, I guess I've lived a fairly uneventful life compared to uh, to some. And But you've had some trauma in your life mm-hmm. the, your, with your car accident and, and some other things. Addictions. Addictions. <laughs> so do you just want, wanted to kind of pick your brain on the, I think, the, the spiritual aspects of unresolved, undealt with trauma? Well, I think a lot of people can get stuck. And you see that a lot um, if if you have underlying things that you've not addressed. I mean, if it's, if it's hurts, if it's deaths, if it's addiction, it doesn't matter what it is. I think there's just a lot of trauma, mm-hmm. the word trauma, um, that people you can bottle up and it will 
eats you up from the inside out. And right. And, and some of the other, so the way that, that we saw that George dealt with it was through hoarding hoarding, mm-hmm. and which manifested itself in all kinds of horrendous ways as was discovered after his death. In your case, the way that you dealt with some of that trauma was through substance abuse yeah, mm-hmm. and multiple well, addictions. Yeah. And I, and I think that if you don't, I feel like maybe I I feel like I'm not the right candidate to ask about trauma sometimes because it's not like I went and got professional help for anything. Right. And but obviously neither did George. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the only thing the only thing that I ever got the only way I was ever helped was when I accepted Christ. And and that changed everything. Right. And then you begin to understand and deal with and 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 give grace to other people and you learn forgiveness and you're suddenly set free from these traumas that have burdened your life and your mind and your heart and mm-hmm. your spirit for so long right yeah and george didn't uh, he didn't have a lot of grace at all i don't think well because of his profession i don't think that a lot of people even took the time to reach out to him and he certainly didn't take the time to seek help really that he needed either yeah it's interesting because there there were a lot of um sidewalk interactions if you will Mm -hmm. video clips that that we saw mostly after so we when we started working on the film i i tried to find as many clips of George as we could because he wouldn't let us bring a camera in. He wouldn't mm-hmm. let us take a picture of him. We couldn't take pictures of the inside of the clinic. And so we, he's this very mysterious character really in the film until the end when you mm-hmm. see him in some archival footage. Mm-hmm. Um, but this person that is described and that you see in some of these clips that didn't, that we didn't put into the film He's a, he's an ugly, oh nasty, just nasty man. I mean, mm-hmm. just vulgar and, and it's odd because although we knew that about him, he wasn't really that, that person when we talked to no. him. He was, he was cordial. And at the end it was, he walked us to the car. And, I think he was more shocked that someone actually cared enough to ask him who he was mm-hmm. and how he felt. I, I think you're right. I think he was as pleasantly surprised as we were. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that we got into with him in this uh, in this particular chapter of the film is he's, he tells this story that we would find out later on that he would continually revisit as this justification that he had for doing abortions all of his life. Mm-hmm. That was his whole career mm-hmm. was, was doing abortions. And it's this, uh, this 10 or 12 year old girl. And I say 10 or 12, because it depends on which time you listen to him, tell the story, right. the, the girl's age would shift. Um, girl in Chicago back in the early seventies who had been raped by her uncle and her parents brought her in and George did the abortion at 21 weeks. Mm-hmm. And he tells this story and he says, that's basically why I was doing this, right. you know, because that was just unfair. But, um, 
in the film and and in this part of the book, we call them out because that exact scenario is what got him shut down. That really was what got him shut down. It didn't have anything to do with federal legislation mm-hmm. or the Supreme Court. It was because he was discovered as having been doing underage abortions and not reporting them. So this whole scenario of what supposedly made him so mad, the the injustice of it all, that this girl, that her uh, perpetrator was never uh, brought to justice, is exactly what he facilitated yep. three times over that we know of. Well, and how many times has this happened everywhere else? Uh, you know, Oh, thousands, they I'm just, sure. They, they turned a blind eye yeah. to... To the to the awful abuse of underage girls. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, I think we'll have uh, one of Klopfer's other victims on with us in uh, in a future in a later podcast. Episode, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, so that being the case, let's uh, give a listen to interview with the abortionist part three. Interview with the abortionist part three. The fluorescent light fixture in the ceiling above us buzzed. You know that sound old fixtures make when they're about to start flickering like a prop from a horror movie? Inside the dimly lit, cluttered clinic break room, Amber and I sat at a small round table across from the most prolific abortionist in the history of the state of Indiana, who still came to his defunct clinic once a week and spent the night in the basement. He hadn't been allowed to perform abortions in this building since the end of 2013, yet here he was. I looked around the room, my heart sinking inside me as I thought of the nonchalant conversations that must have taken place in this very room between the nurse executioners and the clinic escorts as they wolfed down their lunches complaining about politics and spouses and talking about their weekend plans. All the while, baby after baby, safe and warm inside their mother's womb, is being unwittingly led down the hallway to be executed, and their bodies discarded in a red medical waste bag. Their only crime? Being conceived and being an inconvenience before they can even cry out for help. Abortionist Klopfer sits across the table. I've just opened the door for him to spill his guts to us or vent his rage. We're not sure what to expect, but we're both fairly certain that we're not what he expected at all. As the recorder listens intently to every bit of noise in the room, transcribing it into a slowly moving waveform across its illuminated screen, what we're going to hear from him is still a mystery, but any fear that Amber and I had coming in is quickly fading for both of us. The raging, terrifying monster I expected to meet instead looks like nothing more than a lonely old man who spent the night on a park bench. If it weren't for the stark knowledge of just who and what he was, I would have almost felt sorry for him, like I should have offered to help him carry his groceries to the car or something. As he ran his hands through his gray, tussled hair, he looked over his smudged eyeglasses at us both. Let me put it this way. Mm -hmm. In 1945, I was with my aunt, 
in the suburbs of Dresden. In February of 1945, in between the Americans and the English, they firebombed Dresden mm. for three days and two nights. Uh, the death toll varies depending upon who you want to believe. Mm. The Allies say it was 40 to 50,000. The Germans said somewhere about 100,000. Uh, the German government at that time said it was 150,000. Americans POWs who were in trains at the train station got killed by the bombing. Uh, and the Women's Church, Frauenkirche in German, which was destructed by the bombing, and the East German government would not allow it to be rebuilt because as a memento of the horrendous thing that happened. After the Berlin Wall fell down and Germany reunited, in 1994, they decided to rebuild the woman's church. And when they did that, in the basement, they found dead bodies from World War II. Okay? Uh, in 1945, 46, 47, when the Russians were where we lived at that time, the Russian soldiers were driving through the fields with the AK-47s, shooting at anything and everything, with no disregard for anybody. Uh, the house across the street from us was destroyed in the bombing, not in the Dresden bombing, another bombing and most of that family got killed. So uh, the effects of the war probably may have not had a positive impact yeah. on my perception, mm -hmm. okay? But... Uh, on your perception of, of what? Of human beings, what they do to each other. And in that moment, I don't think there could have been anything more ironic and tragic at the same time. The abortionist, himself responsible for conceivably at least 10,000 lives, probably more, talking about how World War II changed his perception of what people can do to each other. And I wondered to myself if this man even hears himself when he talks. He started to describe his early years in practice in Chicago and the first abortion he ever performed. With a long sigh, George started in with his twisted tale of self-justification. The bottom line is, and here's my philosophy, it always has been my philosophy, women should have the right to choose. Mm -hmm. Women get pregnant, men don't. Mm -hmm. If men got pregnant, we wouldn't be talking about this, okay? Now, and one of the reasons that really confirmed uh, my motivation was when I was at the hospital in Evanston, I had a 12-year-old girl mm. that was raped by her uncle. She was 21 weeks pregnant and I had to do the abortion in the hospital, okay? That didn't bother me. What bothered me is that her dad and mother wouldn't prosecute the uncle for raping her, their daughter. Okay? We all have to look at one thing. 
the concept that if a woman gets raped and she gets pregnant, that she'd be forced to have the child if she chooses not to, to remind her every day of what transpired is wrong. Wow. I mean, there's a lot to analyze there. It took us some time after our meeting to fully process everything he said. I mean, first, here he is, admitting that his very first in-utero murder was a 21-week-old baby. Later in the conversation, directly contradicting himself, he would insist that he never performed abortions past the first trimester. By his own admission, that first abortion on a 21-week-old wasn't what bothered him at all. Wait a minute, stop. Aborting a 21-week-old baby is not scraping some clump of cells out of a woman's uterus. A 21-week-old baby in the womb has eyes, fingers, toes, ears, a heartbeat, brainwaves, and can survive outside of the womb. So the very first time George did this, he reached inside a 12-year-old girl with surgical instruments ripped that baby's arms and legs off, probably beheaded it after puncturing the baby's skull and letting the brain and its fluids drain out, and then threw the baby's dismembered corpse into the biohazard waste bin to be thrown out with the rest of the surgical garbage. And that's not what bothered him. What bothered him, he said, is that the girl's parents protected the child molester, who happened to be the girl's uncle, by not reporting the crime. There are so many more tragedies in this story that it's really hard to know where to start. I mean, first, a 12-year-old girl who is molested and impregnated by a family member is a, a terrible, unthinkable crime. That young girl, who would now be a grown woman close to 60, has been living with that trauma her entire life. She has also been living with that regret of having lost her first and maybe only child at the hands of a man who went on to murder again thousands of times over. What is so shocking and ironic in this part of the tale is that George sent three girls that we know of back into the exact same situations. He did exactly the same thing to not one, not two, but three young girls, all 13 years of age, performing abortions on these 13-year-olds, then sending them right back into the same situation that got them pregnant in the first place without reporting it to Child Protective Services. And in Indiana, abortionists are required to report to CPS any procedures done to any girl under the age of 14, as there is quite likely a child molester involved. George purposely did not report the underage girl's situations to the authorities, who likely would have stopped further abuse. In fact, it was this non-reporting that, once discovered, quickly unraveled his abortion practice and eventually resulted in his license being permanently suspended in the state. So this very thing that he described seeing happen to a 12-year-old girl in Illinois in 1974 that supposedly made him so angry at the injustice of it all, where a young girl was raped by her uncle, then sent back with no legal repercussions for the rapist, is exactly the thing that George himself facilitated three times. No, George didn't perpetrate the rapes. He just took care of that whole pregnancy thing, then covered up the crime by not telling anyone about it who could go after the perpetrators. 
In fact, the 13-year-old girl in Fort Wayne whose abortion George purposely did not report to the authorities until months later, well, her mother subsequently did report the situation to the police, and the girl's 19-year-old assailant was arrested and charged with two counts of child molesting. I couldn't stop myself. I had to call him out. You said that the thing that got you, that really tipped you into this was a girl who was 12 who was mm-hmm. raped by her uncle. Yeah. But that was many, many years ago. That was in the in the 70s. Yeah, that but, these, but these are girls that are 14 who were, or under 14 who were in the same situation. And, the, in the and st- you could have you could have done something Fine. to help them. And there were two there were two girls in the state of Indiana where I didn't send the foreman in a proper time. And for my memory, I can't tell you what the ages was right now at mm-hmm. this point. In all honesty, I'm just telling you, mm-hmm. I don't I don't remember whether it was one under fourteen. I think maybe the girl from Gary uh, could have been fourteen. Okay, but uh, and the girl from. South Bend, I don't know what her age was. But in both cases, the mother was with the, with the daughter. They, were, they weren't brought in by a, a complete stranger. Uh, Again, no different from the case in Chicago. Case in the girl who was raped by her uncle was brought in by her parents. Right, right. yes, there. yeah. So, right. yeah. I'm just, I'm trying to see where the, where the difference is. That case, that First case in Because the state of Illinois didn't have a, a requirement that I had to report. It's not, but but you said that it, it didn't have anything to do with that. You said that that ticked you off. It ticked yeah. me off because the parents wouldn't prosecute the uncle. Yes. Yeah. So, but here's here's a, a situation where in the state of Indiana, they've put a regulation in place that you I didn't that, follow. Absolutely. That you didn't follow. Right. But yes. if you had followed that, wouldn't that maybe? Do you think maybe those girls got sent back into that situation again? I, I honestly can't tell you. I don't know what the state does when a girl underage gets raped and has an abortion, what the state does. And that's all the more answer we ever got out of George on that matter. But the sparks hadn't even started to fly yet. You see, before going in to talk with George, I had read every single court document, report, and transcript I could get my hands on to make sure that I had the official, documented version of the story committed to memory. I also had every bit of that documentation in my massive three-ring project binder sitting on the table in front of me. George wasn't going to get away with showing up with his own set of facts because I already had all of those. What George didn't anticipate was what would happen when Amber locked on target and backed him into a corner. George was not going to get out of this room with his lies intact. Amber was going to make sure of that. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Fearless with Mark and Amber and listening to Interview with the Abortionist Part 3. Next time, we will have Part 4. Tune in for the grand conclusion, Part 4, next time. And you can go and watch the film online, or we have DVDs available coming soon. You can visit our website at fearlessfeatures.org to learn more about Inwood Drive, the movie, and to finish the audiobook if you want to jump ahead. Exactly. Or you can visit the film website directly at inwooddrivemovie.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Yeah. At That's where we hang out the most. I mean. At Fearless Features. Yeah. And uh, we love to we love to connect with everybody and uh, and get your feedback and 
and share our ministry. There's so much work to do. Yeah. This is a, this a you know, Fearless Features. This is a nonprofit ministry that we started. We're filmmakers by trade. And Fearless is our uh, our answer to the call. The Lord called us and we said the answer is yes. Now what's the question? That's right. All right, you guys. <laughs> Take it easy. Have a great week. Bye-bye.